This week, Paul and I interview Adam Gordon from IT Pro TV. In the news, a remote code execution vulnerability is discovered in Electron. The Azure CTO reveals details about Azure Confidential Computing in part one of three on the three ways of DevSecOps. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash ASW. Active Countermeasures, make every analyst a hunter. IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning for IT teams. Why is it binge-worthy? It's learning presented in an engaging and entertaining talk show format that beats voiceover PowerPoint snooze fests. Watch over 3,300 hours of content in their on-demand library, on your desktop, on the go, or in the comfort of your own living room. IT Pro TV is IT training you and your team actually want to watch, which means a better return on your learning investment. Get started with IT Pro TV for teams by visiting itpro.tv forward slash securityweekly and start a seven-day free trial and get 30% off standard or premium IT Pro TV memberships using the code SECWEEKLY30. Welcome, everyone, to episode 16, our 17th episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodley, and I'm excited to be joined by my prolific co-host, Paul Asadorian. Hey, welcome, everyone. It's good to be here on Application Security Weekly. Looking forward to it as always. Also with us today is a special guest, Adam Gordon of IT Pro TV. Uh, a little bit about Adam. He has literally 10 times or more the number of certifications than uh, we've been running the show as of this episode. So uh, Adam is an encyclopedia of knowledge from the IT Pro TV team, uh, recently doing some courses on Azure, which we're going to focus a little bit on today. Uh, but before we do that, go to itpro.tv slash securityweekly and use the code secweekly30 to try it for seven days for free and then receive 30% off of your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. So definitely go check out Adam's courses. And Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Glad to be with you. Always a pleasure to spend time with you, Paul, and Keith, looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun this yeah. week. So um, one of the things we wanted to talk about, I think, to, to kick things off, Adam, is we've been having a lot of discussions on the show lately about uh, DevOps versus DevSecOps and kind of the, the maturity of that concept. And uh, I wanted to kick things off by just asking, uh, first of all, given you know your experience in your history in the industry to date, um, what are kind of your views on the DevOps or DevSecOps uh, movement? And, and to that end, um, how, do you, how do you feel it is today, I guess? Wait, is DevSecOps a movement? <laughs> ah, maybe that's a good place. Well, to that that was going to kind know. of be my my thought process. So I, I think it's a thing. I don't think it's graduated to be a movement thing. I think you know DevOps. Yes, thumbs up, one hundred percent behind. It's a great thought process. Uh, DevSecOps. I think it's confusing and nobody understands what it is, and it's not really a thing. I think what it is is reminding us as IT professionals and as app security professionals that we need to be focused on building security in 
building early, building often, and continuously integrating throughout the product lifecycle. But I don't think it's a separate thing. I think it's just common sense that we all have to be aligned with and make sure we understand. That would be my two cents and quick take on it. But I do think DevOps as a solution is very important for what we do, uh, given the nature of software defining and the nature of automation and the nature of configuration management today. I think it would be very hard for us to run our scale systems at full bore in the cloud, virtualized or not, without something like a framework that DevOps represents. But I think we often just miss the fact that security should be there from the beginning. I don't think we need a separate DevOps solution called DevSecOps to be able to remind us of that. I think we just need to be smarter about what we do every day. Agreed. I think Paul and I have both mirrored that sentiment on the show uh, a number of times now. Mm. Um, and especially with some of the, the changes in development over your, your career, Adam, um, what is maybe the, the biggest change that you've experienced as of late? I know that you recently taught a, a course on Azure. So um, tell us a little bit about kind of your, your thoughts on the growth of uh, the industry from DevOps perspective, but also um, what your thoughts are on cloud computing today. So, you know, it's an interesting time, as, as I guess you could always say it is, right? The, the famous curse that you get, right? You know, may you live in interesting times. So I think that... You know, these days, and I've been doing what we consider IT and what all of us do in one form or another for over 30 years. When I started in this uh, particular pursuit in my career, my professional uh, pursuits, you know, you couldn't go to school and learn to do what I do, and you couldn't go to school and learn to do what we do. And I've had this conversation with Paul before in other venues as we've talked across a wide variety of topics. And so I've seen this really progress from let's have disassociated, non-centralized, individually managed systems to really let's think about how we develop directory services and how we develop centralization to where we are today, which is let's scale globally and let's build infrastructure that's both physical and virtual. Let's build it both on-prem and in what we now call the cloud. And let's IT enable and IP enable every conceivable kind of device, right, and, and solution as an endpoint, I'm waiting for you know the ability to be able to uh, endpoint enable and web service uh, access things like literally you know and I'm holding up a pen here right just as an old writing implement. But you know think about the fact that something as simple as this as a stylus connected to an endpoint computing solution today actually does play a part in how we manage information across the world. Even though this is a traditional pen. You know what, you get what's the really idea cool, behind, Adam, you know, along those lines, meet, right? um, I got my son a new iPad for his birthday and I got him the Apple Pencil and that's exactly what you're describing. I was like, why right. isn't it working? And then I'm like, oh yeah, I have to enable Bluetooth on, on the iPad in order for the pen uh, to work and, uh, or the pen is the Apple Pencil. It was pretty cool, you know, technology wise, but kind of scary that, you know, everything now is going to have some kind of connectivity. Yeah, I mean, when you think about, you know, the potential for the great democratization of information, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of value in, in some of those things. But I think, at least from my perspective, and I know from many of our peers and colleagues that are listening and many of the people that guest spot on shows such as this, you know, I, I go to sleep at night wondering not about what the next great feature is and the capacity for uh, growth and management, but rather what are the downsides? What are the security liabilities of the concerns that I potentially as a risk manager, I have to focus on for my clients, as an educator, as a consultant, I have to worry about for students and for colleagues, as a knowledge um, 
conduit for information management for a variety of sources I have to worry about consuming and then turning back around and summarizing in, in actionable ways. And I think that's really the, the challenge I often struggle with is that I think there's so much value in a lot of what we are doing, but I think the problem becomes that we rush to the value without understanding the implications of the risk and the liability that we create. And I think that's where DevOps and ultimately by extension, this idea of how we build security into our product life cycles becomes a very important bulwark and really a very important control element in what we do to recognize that value in terms of a cost benefit analysis. So I have a kind of a follow-up question to that, which is um, to what extent do you feel it's the responsibilities of the you know platform providers or the, the cloud service providers to build in that security or even from like the language and framework uh, developers such as React or Angular? Do you, do you feel that we should be uh, perhaps training more people on security or in terms of like developers or that we should be expecting um, the providers of these solutions to be giving us security defaults so that people just can't do it badly to begin with? Yes, <laughs> I think I think we need both, right? So I, I think our, our biggest uh, potential liability in terms of a gap or a hole or a miss that we would see is that we we rush to judgment on one versus the other, and we say, oh, the problem is security awareness and training. Let's just focus on making our implementers, our managers, our IT professionals smarter at the end of the point of the spear, and everything will be okay because that'll propagate back, and. We've seen evidence of that over the years, that education is critical, but education by itself without the supporting subsystems and, and frameworks and vendor commitments to enable the systems to provide the support we need, unfortunately is half-baked at best. And so we do need, because of the, the exact nature of what cloud does, which is abstract risk and transfer to the managed service provider without necessarily our ability as the customer or the implementer and manager, to be able to implement and to control elements of that risk in meaningful ways. If it's not a partnership, we don't have a solution that actually works holistically and works across the platform, both inside the cloud, right, just cloud only, and hybrid environments, which are becoming more and more the norm. And that's really where we run into trouble. We may be good if we're only running on the cloud providers platform exclusively, you know, cloud only, but if we're not incorporating solutions that allow us in hybrid environments to manage risk equally effectively, where we're not the only party that's managing risk, in other words, the cloud provider, as well as the on-prem provider, play, out, play a, an equal hand in some respects in managing, allocating, and identifying risk. If we're not dealing with that effectively, we're just inviting problems and concerns to propagate and over time become unmanageable. Now, are there any cloud service providers today that are, are doing a good job of kind of managing that across the board? I, mean, I know that, for example, a, a couple of weeks ago, Paul and I talked about Azure Sphere, which is the, the new kind of IoT pseudo cloud chip related solution that Microsoft is, is putting forward for IoT itself. Um, but with, with the you know, advent of cloud solutions, is, uh, is anyone doing this better than others, I guess I should ask? So, you know, I, I think it's a loaded question. I, I don't mind answering it. I just, you know, it's like anything else. It's a perception question and an opinion question. So I think caveat emptor, right? Right expectation, and you have the right kind of answer. I do think, in my opinion, there definitely are vendors that are better at it than others. And I'll give you one practical real-world example of where we see this. So, you know, I, I love all three major cloud providers. Let's start with that. I think Google Cloud Platform, the GCP solution. I think Amazon. I think, you know, AWS. I think Microsoft Azure all 
are tremendous platforms, all have radically reinvented and changed the way we do things. And I think all have strengths and weaknesses to be fair to all three vendors. But one specific example in this regard, so using Amazon AWS S3 buckets is something that is fairly ubiquitous. Everybody that deals with Amazon, deals with AWS, at least has heard of an S3 bucket, whether they're using them or understand them or not. This is essentially just the backend storage system that Amazon exposes and provides and that you use to put your data into. The problem I have with a solution like AWS with S3 buckets is that natively, and, and Keith, you and I were talking a bit about this right before uh, the show in our kind of, hey, let's talk about what we're going to talk about conversation. And I brought up this exact example, which is you know, natively S3 buckets don't have encryption for data at rest applied. It is available, right? Don't get me wrong. All three major vendors provide that capability. All three major vendors use AES 192 and 256 bit encryption in some form, depending on what you choose to do. But Amazon on Azure puts this in natively and says data at rest is automatically encrypted. The minute the data hits the blob storage or hits any of our storage gears, it's natively encrypted. Whether you choose as the customer to do that or not, we're doing it as the managed service provider. We have an option as the customer to opt in and take additional steps to use our own private keys and further enhance that encryption capability. And we have options to store those in key vaults and store them in HSMs and do a variety of things. But natively, even if we choose to do nothing, that data is encrypted at rest. In an S3 bucket, that data is not encrypted natively. You have to go out of your way after you enable the bucket and put data there to enable encryption. As an IT professional, as a security professional, as a risk manager, as an auditor, I could go on and on, right, about the things I do every day for customers and for students. I find this to be so troubling on so many levels and so problematic, and I just don't have a point of reference for how a cloud vendor would provide enterprise-capable solutions to customers without enabling this feature. I get the fact that maybe on the consumer side, which is where Amazon started out, and I understand the logic of how that architecture was geared for that and how changing it now may break a lot of other things. But how you design a solution and then purport to manage it as an enterprise-capable solution without native encryption enabled by default, for me, is a huge miss. And I think it's one of the reasons that while Amazon is the 800-pound gorilla in this space, I think that they ultimately have to think about redesigning their platform if they want to be a serious contender in the enterprise long term because they're losing market share as a result of issues like this. Well, Adam, I think you bring up a, a great point and it kind of reminds me like back in the day when we had Red Hat 5.2 and you would install it and there's all these services running by default and even Windows to a large extent, right, has gone from pretty open by default to pretty closed by default and I think largely because of enterprises, right, putting some pressure on Microsoft, as an example, and saying, we, we want to just specifically enable these features. We don't want them to be there by default. I feel like that the major cloud providers are still playing catch up in that aspect, that when you spin up some new instances, like, I feel like everything's kind of on and like open and not enabled because they want the user to have a good experience. But that comes at a cost for security. And I, I hope that the cloud providers are going to catch up and make it harder to uh, have security exposures. You know, I had always wondered why uh, I had never heard about any of the Azure, you know, databases or uh, Azure storage being compromised and, and right. what have you, because you hear about S3 buckets all the time. 
uh, being being compromised, whether it's a Mongo database out on S3 or uh, just you know plain text storage of user credentials and pictures. There was that story, I think it was last week or uh, two weeks ago, where um, there was a, a chat service that was storing everything out on S3 and it was all unencrypted. And, uh, and I always wondered why you never saw that for the other cloud service providers. But I guess that, that kind of tells it all with what you shared there, Adam, which is they've got encryption on by default. So even if it was, you know, publicly accessible, now you got to go through cracking everything, you know, uh, piece being by, or by bits, you know, it's each bit in the, the chain, I guess. So, um, that's actually really awesome to know. Cause I, I never even thought of that as like a, a security feature that you'd have to worry about turning on. You'd think that they would do it by default. Are there other security features that Azure is doing well that that you think would be worth highlighting for our audience? Sure. And before I answer that, let me go back to the point I just made about Amazon and S3 buckets, right? So the, the downside we already talked about, but here's another issue associated with the way they choose to address this. Because you have the option to opt in and enable encryption after the fact, remember, not turned on by default. Um, as a result, somebody could go in and disable encryption as well, which means you may now choose to expose data that has been protected. Whereas when you have a model that says, let's put that lever squarely in the hands of the provider, the MSP, the managed service provider, the CSP, the cloud service provider, whatever you want to refer to them as, and let's take it away from the customer. Not because we want to prevent them to, to Paul's point about having a good experience, not because we don't want you to have options based on the value you perceive for what you pay for, but rather because we just know fundamentally at the end of the day, this is such a bedrock foundational basic got to have it no matter what option that there shouldn't be a choice, right? You shouldn't ever be able to put data into a storage system without natively encrypting it at rest, provided you have the ability to recover that data and interact with it, even if someone else is managing it. And you know, let's make sure we understand the caveats associated with that. But that's the case with all the other providers. It should be the case across the board ubiquitously. It's clearly not. But the fact that even if you enable it, you may choose to disable it later or someone else, more importantly, without realizing it, may do that, thinking that they're doing something either correct or incorrect on purpose by accident, who knows, means that we now just have additional risk and concern that we have to identify and put controls in place to manage. It's not just, hey, we got to make sure on that checklist the data is encrypted after creation, but now we have to make sure nobody decrypts that data during lifecycle management. And those are additional burdens that from an enterprise perspective, again, I, I just can't really understand the logic of, and I can't really understand why I have to mitigate, mitigate <laughs> why I have to mitigate that risk um, as a result of those choices that the vendor's making, and I'm being asked to pay for the privilege on top of it by consuming a cloud service I have to pay for. So I, I'm just pointing out that there's more to that conversation because it's an additional risk. We'd have to catalog and inventory separately and now create additional systems to control. And it's much more complex as a result. So, but to your, to your other point, are there other things that I think are, are being done well and perhaps maybe on one or more platforms we could point out. I think all three vendors have a great, have done a great job with creating web application level firewalls, whatever you want to call them, application gateways and firewall capabilities to prevent inbound common attacks aligned with critical security controls, aligned with OWASP top 10 uh, concerns, the new updated uh, set of controls and OWASP concerns being the most recent ones. So I think all vendors have done a pretty good job there, Microsoft included, to be fair to all vendors. Uh, but I think some of the interesting capabilities that continue to emerge 
and continue to evolve around what Microsoft calls or Azure calls the security center, which is kind of the key uh, security area, right, that Microsoft has and Google and, and Amazon all have their equivalents. I think it's interesting because they've taken this modular approach as most vendors have, where they've got solution-based architecture and we can choose to implement based on what we're running, options and capabilities that in some respects may be add-ons and you may have to pay for, but integrate holistically into not just the solution space, but then integrate into the management, into the monitoring, and into the analytics capabilities that allow us to get all up vision across the platform as to what's happening. Uh, I think that's really a critical piece that has, I think really become very prevalent on all vendor platforms, but Microsoft's done a really good job of taking their existing product stacks. I'm thinking about System Center and the System Center suite, so the ops management capability, the configuration management capability in particular, and integrating them in line into Azure and making them seamless, but not just for Azure, but integrating them across the cloud stack with Office 365. And this is, I think, a strength that Microsoft has that other vendors like Google have and Amazon has, but because of Microsoft's exposure in the enterprise space as the enterprise solution provider, and you know, you could argue that and whether they are that provider these days or not, but they clearly own the majority of desktop and a huge chunk of the productivity share in those spaces. The fact that they are able to integrate their cloud platform offerings holistically end to end is I think the biggest strength they offer on their platform. Absolutely, and integration is, is key. Paul, do you have anything to add there before we jump into our five questions with Adam? No, let's do the five questions. I love the five questions. I love that you came up <laughs> with five questions for this show too, it's awesome. Well, I had to, Paul. I mean, after years of listening to the main show, it was just one of those things that needed to be done. So, so great. Uh, with that, Adam, are you ready for uh, Application Security Weekly's five questions? Uh, I, I am scared to say I am, having been through this with Paul before, but I will give it my best shot, absolutely. Well, since we're, you know, we're not after hours, unlike Paul Schumann, are perhaps a bit more PC. But uh, with that being said, speaking of PC, what were the specs like on your first computer? So interesting. I am from the generation that uh, actually built my own first computer. You, you may remember the TRS-80, commonly known as the Trash-80, affectionately, among those of us that uh, built one. So I built my very own first computer, and it was a TRS-80. Full, so, full soldering and all? Full soldering and all. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, um, let me ask them, was it the sort of thing that you had to go and pick up at like a radio shack or was this like ordered out of a magazine? I'm really curious now because I mean, when I was younger, I can't imagine that uh, my parents would let me anywhere near a soldering iron. So I really, I need to know like how this came into your possession. <laughs> so, um, you know, back when the, when those systems were available, um, they were radio shack, uh, Tandy inspired. That was where they came from. Uh, and I don't remember it was actually a gift. I don't know if it was mail ordered or if somebody picked it up in the store. That part I couldn't tell you because I didn't buy it. Um, a family member had gotten it for me uh, and it became a project, kind of a labor of love. Um, but uh, I did, uh, once I got it, I did actually work on it, build it myself, got it working and did some very basic, basic programming on it, uh, which led to all the crazy shenanigans I've been up to over the last many years. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Yeah. Now, speaking of programming, though, uh, what was the first programming language you learned? And uh, if you do any programming today, what do you enjoy writing in today? 
Sure. So I, believe it or not, as, as many geeks of my generation, uh, as I've already demonstrated, I, I fall squarely into that camp. I went to a computer camp when I was, oh God, probably maybe eight, nine, 10 years old, somewhere in there. My folks sent me during summer to what you would think of now as probably uh, you know, like a hackathon, right? But it was a summer camp and you went and learned how to do basic programming. So I learned Atari Basic uh, as one of my very first languages and learned how to do all sorts of crazy stuff on those early systems. And I got up into all sorts of crazy things and hacked, you know, game consoles and probably got up to a no good on a variety of platforms early on. But when I got serious um, in uh, high school and into college in particular, uh, when I did my graduate work, I had to learn and, and work on VAC systems, which are not very prevalent today, but were very prevalent back then. Uh, to do uh, statistics in graduate school. You had to work on VAC systems, so I had to do and learn that. I actually did that on punch cards, believe it or not. Probably one of the last people that can say that and actually, um, based on my timing and, and my uh, my age, probably, I am one of the last people in my peer group that I know that went through and had to do that on punch cards. But you know, I learned the old-fashioned way in terms of languages. I dabbled in a lot of different stuff. I was sharing with you guys. I have a background with Pascal, Fortran, COBOL, some of those languages from early on. Uh, I, I started out initially as an app dev person. That's what I did early on. Uh, but I became an infrastructure person fairly early in my career. And as any good app developer and or infrastructure person that's honest will tell you, uh, you can't really be good at both. You have to really pick one and specialize in one and focus on one to be good at it. So I dabble these days, but I don't do development full time anymore. Um, but I'm very interested in Ruby and Python, in um, mQuery and query languages. mQuery is a Power BI language for Microsoft in particular. Uh, PowerShell, a lot of different things. Awesome. Now I have to ask though, and this might be, I probably should reword this. So normally I would ask Vim or Emacs, but in this case, I think it might be VI or Emacs. <laughs> Right. I was going to say when you asked that, when we talked about that earlier, um, yeah, for me, um, I, if I had my choice, honestly, I would say nano right, as opposed to either of those, but I'll go with Ooh. VI um, <laughs> if, uh, if you force me to make a choice. Well, um, we will count you as an ally then uh, in the VI camp. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I learned on Vim myself. I've got nothing against Emacs whatsoever for those listeners out there. I just have never had the chance to use it and learn Vim. So that was me. Um, so you mentioned a few programming languages uh, that you've enjoyed today, such as you know Ruby, Python, etc. Is there any one language, or maybe even just a few languages, that that you'd recommend people look at picking up today? Um, just be, since DevOps has so much to do with you know security professionals and developers and ops people, all kind of having a, a somewhat same base level of knowledge. Are there any languages in particular that you think would be useful, uh, kind of across the board, just to know how to how to use within your own environment? Sure. I think from a security perspective, and I'll answer your question from two perspectives. I'll put on my IT security and uh, risk manager hat for just a minute. And I think from that perspective, you want to know Python and Java because those are languages that are very important with regards to monitoring, with regards to security, and with regards to penetration testing, vulnerability assessment, those kind of things that we find in multi-platform frameworks. I think with regards to uh, infrastructure-based work. I think obviously you choose your platform, but I think any automation capabilities, configuration management capabilities that you can understand how to script and work with are gonna add value. And I think in the Microsoft world, PowerShell is gonna be that, that tip of the spear. 
I think JSON is an incredibly important capability in language building on Java uh, generically these days. And so I think if you're if you're well versed in those areas, I think you're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Awesome. So the last question I have is uh, either a topic or a person. Uh, what would you nominate, or who would you nominate uh, that we cover on a future show? So. Glad you asked that question. Uh, if we can go to my screen for just a second, I actually have a, a profile up for one of my colleagues here at IT Pro TV. Uh, we don't just have uh, the IT Pro TV brand and channel. We do have other brands and channels under the IT Pro TV namesake. Dev Pro TV is one of them that you'll be hearing a lot about uh, in the coming time. And Justin Dennison, whose smiling face is there, uh, is the lead host in that particular channel. Uh, and he does all of our dev-related work. Uh, we spend time uh, talking about a variety of different languages and pursuits, of course. And I think he would be great because I think he'll bring for you that cutting-edge development and cutting-edge uh, thought process, really hands-on, knee-deep in the trenches, day in and day out, uh, in terms of what's going on in the dev space. So he would be my vote. Awesome. That is a really good recommendation. I look forward to having him on the show in a future episode. With that, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today for Application Security Weekly. We are going to take a break and come back for the news. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, guys. Take care.